Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. For this episode, we go to New Zealand to meet with Nuria Lohani from NESI. NESI is the New Zealand e-science infrastructure organisation, and Nuria has the important role of research community advisor there. She's also actively involved building the RSE community in her country. Hello, Nuria, and welcome to our show. Thanks for staying up so late. I understand it's after dinner at your time, isn't it? Yes, it is. We just had daylight savings here, Peter, and I'm actually really excited to be here. It's a great way to spend my post-dinner hour. Yeah, thank you very much, Nuria. And let's start with your background and uh, how you became a software engineer, a research software engineer. I stumbled upon this RSC community quite later on. Uh, mm -hmm. I started off my career as a bioinformatician. I did my bachelor's and my master's uh, project. They were all majoring in bioinformatics. And I was quite interested in genetics and computer science as a whole. And um, I moved on to then a commercial role as a bioinformatician for a cancer diagnostics firm. And after that, I moved back into research where I was working um, at the University of Auckland as a bioinformatician uh, that provided services to the biological sciences department. I then moved to Nessie, where I finally stumbled upon um, the research software engineers community. So I didn't know I was an RSC until very recently. What does NESI actually stand for and what does it do? NESI is the New Zealand e-science infrastructure mm -hmm. and we are basically um, sort of an investment that's made by the government, the New Zealand government and uh, a few universities and research institutes around New Zealand to start a national research, national e-science infrastructure, which is uh, basically an HPC facility with the peripheral mm. uh, research and training services. And right, and what is your role there? So I currently work there as a research communities uh, advisor, which is more of a community engagement role. And I've mm. never really done this before, but it, it, I've come to realize that I really enjoy it. I work with researchers around New Zealand to understand their needs in terms of uh, software, data, uh, computational needs, and bring it back to Nessie. And we try and see how, how we best can cater to uh, what, what the research communities in New Zealand are requiring at any point in time. And so every day I get to meet really interesting researchers with, who are doing really great research in uh, all different domains, which is quite an exciting aspect of my mm. role. Um, let's step back a little bit to the infrastructure part of what you just said. Some universities have their own HPC clusters. As far as the e-science infrastructure project in New Zealand is concerned, can we understand this as kind of a central hub for high-performance computing? Is that what it is? Yes, that's absolutely right, Peter. So it's a few universities, research institutes, and the government have come together and invested mm. a sum of money to build this high-performance computing facility and the supporting roles that, that are wrapped around this HPC facility. So we, have, we provide training and we have consultancy services where we help researchers to upskill. Mm. And so there, there are a few things that are 
that come along with it. But in, in essence, that's what we are a national provider of HBC and you might have one at your local university as well. Yep. All right. It is quite a change in your career, isn't it, from a more technical and science role to a community manager role. I mean, how do you feel about this transition? It actually really excited me, Peter, that just the fact that communicating science and communicating research to to researchers and to non-researchers and then meeting people from all different domains. I think that that's what I've come to realize that is something that I really, really enjoy. And uh -huh. I think that science communication has always been something I was very focused on and really wanted to pursue, but I just didn't have the direction. And now with this role at Nessie, I think I'm able to use science communication a bit more. And I'm, I'm keeping in touch with the technical aspect of my uh, training as well through a PhD that I'm currently pursuing as well. Yeah, I'll be come to that a little bit later because I think it's quite an exciting part of your work. Uh, you mentioned that you didn't realize you were an RSE until you actually heard about it. I mean, that's a story I heard many times over. How would you describe the RSE community in New Zealand? Because I understand you're also part of this RSE New Zealand Australia chapter. Wow, that's a very big question. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, can, I can definitely shine some light from my perspective. I think that in the, in the couple of years that I've worked on building the RSE community here in New Zealand, what we've come to realize is that it is definitely a community that exists very much so and is quite embedded in the research system. They're just probably not called RSCs as of yet, and it's not a very formal role that is as recognized as some of the other roles like uh, a professor or a lab technician, for example. Mm. So I think that the challenge for us is just getting, just finding the right people, communicating to the right people, and just reaching out to uh, research software engineers that are so embedded in our research system. I think that uh, you mentioned the RSC AUNZ, which is Research Software Engineers Australia and New Zealand. I, mm. I met a I met a bunch of very motivated people who were leading the RSC community work in Australia through my role at Nessie. And what I've come to realize is that we were much better and much stronger when we just came together. Mm. Uh, Australia and New Zealand, we are very close geographically and um, New Zealand gets left behind a little bit because we're a little bit isolated from the rest of the world. And so... <laughs> It's, it's really nice to have a buddy and a partner in, in the Australian RSC community. And so I think together we're able to re reach a wider audience, relate to more people, uh, spread the word better. And that's what sort of motivated us to start a chapter together. My understanding is that your work at Nessie helped you build that community. So how do you go about building a community is what I would like to know. That is a great question. I am still uh, finding my way through that one. I think that to begin with, the most important thing is we had to get the word out there and we had to get people to know that research software engineering community is a thing. It exists. Mm. It's uh, relatable to them. Uh, and it It's a funny thing because RSCs are not very, you can't really box them up into a certain type of role. It's quite a spectrum of people that can fall into or can identify with this community. 
for me, I had to pull together every contact I had. I had to use my mm. connections through, uh, through those contacts to just reach out to as many people as possible, just for outreach and just to let mm -hmm. people know that this exists. And, you know, we're trying to bring recognition to RSCs here in New Zealand. That's just how we started. And we're still sort of finding our feet. This year, we had quite a big milestone that we've just crossed. So we held our very first New Zealand RSC conference, which was quite interesting in COVID times, <laughs> I must say. We had around 200 people that registered. Um, oh, wow. We had a turnout of about 150 people, which is quite exciting because we don't even, we didn't know that there, were, there was that much interest here. That just gives us encouragement and a positive outlook into where this community is heading and that there are a lot more people out there that are interested. So we ran this conference entirely virtual and yeah, we were just really pleasantly surprised with its success. We're still sort of celebrating that milestone. That is quite a milestone in 175 or 150 people, I think you mentioned. That is quite a big turnout. Can you tell us a little bit more about the conference and how that went? I mean, how did you structure that conference? What actually happened on that day? Yeah, absolutely. So just to give you some context, we uh, Nessie holds a, science, a conference called the Science Coding Conference. And it's, we've done that every year for the past four years. And this was catered towards the advanced computing community within mm. research. Once we've got involved in the RSC community, more and more we've realized that the conference essentially is an RSC conference because most of the attendees and presentations are very RSC focused. Mm. And um, so this year we decided we're going to do a rebranding and we're going to pitch it as an RSC conference. And quite interestingly, we had a much bigger turnout than we've ever had in an in-person conference that that could be partly because we went virtual and we could reach a wider audience because yeah. we had quite a few Australians that participated as well. But we knew that we wanted to stay true to research soccer engineers and give, give this community the opportunity to communicate the technical aspects that you wouldn't necessarily get to communicate or talk about at any other conference if it's a very research-focused conference. It was really nice to see that people talked about scalability, people talked about sustainability, research software sustainability was a, was a huge topic this year. And so we were just really excited to see how it all went. Stepping back a little bit, what you mentioned earlier, recognition and recognition of RSEs, what specifically do you have in mind? To me, it is very important that RSCs are not casual roles at universities that are mm -hmm. just coming in to do a job and finish a project and then they're not required. Whereas I think that many, many research labs and research institutes in New Zealand are realizing that people who are computationally skilled data scientists and research software engineers are actually an integral part of running a successful, sustainable research scheme. And so I think that for me, recognition, especially focused on job stability or just stability in the roles is quite an important thing and that's what I hope to see as a result of my work or at least see us heading in that direction. Talking about heading in that direction in future, how do you see research software engineering evolve in New Zealand? 
Wow. Okay. So this is a hypothetical situation. It I'm is. Going to, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to be as optimistic as possible. I would like to see RSCs have a formal permanent role in the research system. So I know we have professional roles and we have academic roles, but I think that software has become such a staple in just our daily lives and the same for research. It's just become such a staple in research. And I would like to see another stream or another category of employment for people with, with this software skill. Yeah, that, that would be my ideal, I think, that the university system would have academics, professional staff, and then research software staff. Do you have any ideas of how to go about this? So what I mentioned to you was wishful thinking, um, and it's it's great that it's happening at uh, in a lot of countries. And I think mm-hmm. that we're slowly starting to see it happening in New Zealand as well. I do know of a couple of research institutes that have created job descriptions and job titles, and mm-hmm. they are called research software engineers. I also think that these conversations need to happen at a higher up level, and so reaching out to those decision makers, getting heard by them is quite an important part of this. I think firstly, we we do need to reach those decision makers. But to do that, we need a really strong community backing. And we need a large community that is supporting the cause. And so that's what that's where we're starting. We're starting to build that community, a real self-sustaining community where people are actively participating and moving forward in making RSCs a formal role in their own institutes. I think that then reaching out to decision makers would be the next step. So we're still at stage one. We are building our community here in New Zealand. We're getting stronger every day and feeling very optimistic. I think that's a very nice approach to build a community first and make that strong and then go to decision makers and see, well, hey, we need some support from you. I would like to move on from the community aspect to your paper, because I believe congratulations are in order and you submitted your paper, didn't you? I did submit the paper. Congratulations might have to wait a little bit longer because I I haven't gotten accepted yet. It's a pretty Mm. big conference and there are some really cool researchers and they have a lot of submissions. So let's see how it goes. Well, now our curiosity is peaked. You might have to tell us what this paper is actually all about. My PhD is based on influenza-like illness. And I say influenza-like illness and not influenza because not all influenza-like illness is classified as a flu virus. I am building a model to predict influenza-like illness in New Zealand using historical data. I've been fortunate enough to get access to historical data for New Zealand influenza-like illness patients. And so I, I don't have access to personal health information, but I do, I do have some counts from previous years. And I'm, I'm trying to build a model to forecast the number of cases that we might see in a week or two weeks into the future. Is that for the purpose of predicting how many hospital beds are needed or uh, what's the effect of Yes, exactly. And so the, the main reason that this project came about is because in a lot of cases, influenza surveillance is very useful information, but it gives us information about the cases after the fact. 
this uh, forecasting would actually help us to be warned and help policymakers to make decisions based on the predictions. And so, yes, exactly like you said, the hospital beds and the number of patients that might be coming through just to better prepare for the influenza season. Your part of the work was to build a model and run these predictions. Is that correct? That's right. I built a model and I'm forecasting a week and two weeks worth of influenza cases. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you went about building such a model? The approach I'm taking is not using, uh, not necessarily using biological models because the the plan for my next step is to start to incorporate data from Google searches and Twitter data. So use, using social media data as well. I'm using time series forecasting uh, methods. I started off with just generic time series forecasting methods like ARIMA that are very regularly used by researchers to forecast any counts like these. I started off with very simple baseline models. We started to think about what is it that could improve the accuracy of our forecast. So we wanted to use machine learning in our models and most of the existing time series forecasting methods, they use a lot of statistical models and we wanted to try and see if machine learning could improve upon those statistical modeling forecasts. We did happen to see some improvement using machine learning and we hope that our paper and our method will prove that we have an interesting new method to create even better forecasts. When you say biological models, what exactly do you mean by that? There are a couple of biological models like the SEER model, which is currently being used in the COVID situation as well. Mm -hmm. That sort of requires quite a bit of information about the virus itself to be able to provide some sort of forecasts or some sort of uh, indication of how the community spread is going to occur. I'm not working on a biological model. I'm, I'm working on a time series model because we want to use a large number of historical data. And if we don't know anything about that virus, how close to the actual numbers can we predict into the future is what we want to, want to try and find out. Well, you mentioned the magic phrase, COVID-19. How much do you hope that your work will influence the work that is currently happening on COVID-19? And how is it linked? That's an interesting question. I don't want to make any such any claims that might get me in trouble, but I do think that there is relatability there. And I think that because this model is independent of the biological factors and the fact that mm -hmm. it does not depend on a biological organism or details about how the biological organism is spreading to produce these forecasts, it could possibly be used in any communicable disease situation. But I haven't tested it myself. And so that is certainly something that we could think of in the future. I haven't done it myself yet. Right. How difficult do you think it's going to be to actually make the transition from influenza-like disease to, say, COVID-19 or something else? Would that be easy or difficult to adopt? 
I think that there are a couple of things that my current model uses that we don't particularly have in the COVID-19 situations. Mm. I'm using historical data of, say, the last five years, where we have daily information of what the counts are looking like, which we don't have for COVID. I don't have, we don't have enough historical data. We have no history with COVID at all to be able to use that to train machine learning models to produce better forecasts. And so that's a huge challenge that I think might inhibit us from implementing my model on on COVID-19 data. Uh, Having said that, I think it would be quite interesting to see what happens because we've we've already been in a COVID situation for over six months. And I'd be really interested to see uh, what the forecasts would look like and whether we could even get close to the actual numbers. Are there any lessons that you learned as a software engineer from the work that you did on this? I had a huge learning curve, actually. Like I mentioned, my background is in bioinformatics. And so Mm. I was quite familiar with genetics and biological sciences. I did know how to use software applications and things like that. But I, I think that moving into the whole machine learning area was very new to me. And so there was a huge learning curve there. What I did realize, though, is that the the skills that we gain as people who are able to use and manipulate software uh, are quite transferable. And, you know, you can sort of learn the concepts and the mathematical concepts behind certain mm. models and things and quite easily transfer your coding and software skills to that that kind of a problem. That was quite an interesting epiphany I had where I didn't really think of it as such a transferable skill before. I do think that, that I value it even more now. I think it's important to realize how transferable this is to any research problem. How can we envisage the work that you did on your paper? Is that uh, available to other people? Uh, is that something that you would imagine could be used in other projects, not only by you, but by other researchers? How did you approach that? If it was just up to me, I think that making it open source and available to everyone is is the way I would choose to go. But it's I think that it's a combination of things for me. I, my, the data that I've used is public health data, and I'm not able to disclose that, that information to mm-hmm. anywhere in the web for ethical reasons. I am not able to share a lot of the work that I'm currently doing. So I think that it would depend entirely on my funding body. When an RSC is creating software or writing software, I think that I never thought about this before, but I always wondered why it, certain things were not open source or why we didn't, mm. why the public couldn't access it that easily, while other software was. I think that a lot of it is to do with the funding body, legal implications, ethical implications. I would love to make it available, but it's not up to me, unfortunately. <laughs> I think that's a problem that's probably faced with a lot of research projects that while we may want to make that public, there might be legal implications that will stop us from doing that. Talking of which, uh, in the paper, how does the software actually enter into this? How did you deal with that in that particular paper? That's a really good question. Yes, the core paper just contains the results and very little about the implementation of the of the code and the implementation of the actual algorithm that Mm. we we wrote. 
But there was, of course, the ability for us to add that information or the code in supplementary data, basically. So I, I wasn't able to provide the, da- the actual data that was used for the analysis because of ethical reasons, as I mentioned. But I, I did provide my code as supplementary material. Although I think that in a different conference with a different focus, I I might be able to talk more about the implementation of the algorithm, which would be quite an interesting one. In an ideal scenario, how would you wish a paper would look like and how it combined the science results with the the software? Well, you're putting me in a lot of hypothetical ideal scenarios, Peter. (laughs) I'm, I'm really liking it. It's waking my imagination up a little bit. I would like to see them on equal footing. It would be really nice to to be able to submit a research paper with a little more than five page limits (laughs) so that we we can actually talk about the implementation. Yeah, it's cramming our style of doing everything in five pages, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's a fascinating discussion, Nuria. Unfortunately, we are coming to the end of the podcast now and I usually end with two questions. At the end of your career, what do you hope you had achieved by then? Wow, I haven't thought that far, but let's say I have thought that far. I would hope that I have created opportunities for people who come after me in this research software space. I would hope that students entering university would think of research software engineering as an actual career and a field that they could think of and not just stumble into because that's what the demand of the of the day was and i hope to create a diverse community of rscs you know where everyone has equal opportunity and i would hope to see the technical software people the computational researchers on equal footing as academics that's quite ambitious well thank you very that much Nuri. <laughs> um, the final question is what do you do in your spare time i understand you have a new puppy so that may actually answer at least part of that question yes you're right we've gotten cloud for two weeks now he's quite a handful and i he leaves absolutely no time for anything else me and my partner in our spare time we really enjoy traveling and exploring new cultures so that's mm-hmm. that's our thing we we went to indonesia and we really really enjoyed the culture there and we 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 hope to explore some more places when covid permits us to but yeah traveling is one of my main hobbies well the puppy was very well trained because it didn't interrupt us at all didn't it <laughs> so <laughs> I shut the door and just before this interview started, I was chasing him around the room just to, just to, <laughs> just to get him out of here. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Nuria. It was such a pleasure talking to you. It was lovely speaking with you, Peter. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcast from. And with that... Goodbye.